And we wouldn't know what to think either, would we? You see, that's the interesting thing about these people that documented and wrote down what they saw about that day that we celebrate today, which technically isn't Easter, it's the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And they document very honestly what they believed at the time that they believed it and what they didn't believe at the time that they believed it because they see they're less like you and me. They believe dead people did what we've seen dead people do, and that is stay dead. These were not superstitious people. Uh, For example, the people uh, like uh, Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus, was one of the apostles. He was there, and he writes that down. Mark, who was also there, not one of the apostles, but Peter was his mentor, and Peter spoke into his ear as he wrote. And John, whom we'll look at today, John, uh, who was there not only uh, at the um, empty tomb, but he was there at the crucifixion. He was the only of the, uh, the 12 disciples that was there. <clears throat> he and, and uh, some women disciples that were there. And then later on, Luke, who becomes a Jesus follower years after the crucifixion and the resurrection, but he's a researcher, he's a doctor, he's a historian, he, 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 he knows how to think this thing through. So he, he goes to Jerusalem, interviews all the people that are still there that saw this stuff, writes it down in detail, and then he travels around the empire with the apostle Paul explaining what God was doing in the church at that time and, and how they felt about the reality of Jesus, and he writes it down in meticulous detail. But they all are extremely honest about what was going through their minds and what was going through their hearts on Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning. Like Luke, for example. He starts off his narrative and his story, his documentation of this whole day this way. He says, on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So you might ask yourself, why are they doing this on Sunday? I mean, he died on Friday afternoon. Well, for one thing, he died a lot quicker than people usually die in crucifixion. They didn't expect it to happen. And plus, uh, at night, on Friday night, that's when their Sabbath started. And you couldn't be messing around with dead bodies then. So they hurriedly, in, in the midst of their shock, in the midst of wondering what God was up to, because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he was the miracle worker. He was the Son of God. And God surely wouldn't let his son die, would he? And they're, they're following Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, two Pharisees who were also secret Jesus believers, to a tomb that Joseph had uh, just uh, purchased. And, and they put Jesus' body in there, and they wrap the lindens around it real quick and roll the stone in front of it. And, and, and you would think about that. you think, you know what? If you went through all that without the, evidence, the help of hindsight that we have about how the story turns out, you'd be in that same place. I'd be in that same place. Because... Just the sheer emotional exhaustion. You'd have to have some time to catch up. So it's no wonder that they get him in the, in the tomb and then they say, we'll come back and we'll put these spices around him. In fact, the Gospels tell us that they weren't discussing whether or not Jesus was the Messiah or the Son of God. What they were discussing is who's going to move that honking stone away? Who's going to take care of that? Because we're pretty sure we can't do that on our own. In fact, look how, report, how, how Luke reports further. He says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's significance about this is what is not said. They did not assume that Jesus had risen from the dead at this point. They thought something else happened. Nobody ran out of the tomb going, he's alive, he's alive. 
Nobody stood at the, at the front of the tomb. The guards are there, and they're just staring them down and going, okay, Jesus, you're going to pop out like a piece of toast. Nobody thought that was going to happen. In fact, what we find out from John is that one of the, one of the women, Mary Magdalene, runs back and reports to him and to Peter. And the reason we know this is, is not only that John has reported it, but we know all the women kind of came back, but Mary is sort of like the spokesperson for the, the women disciples, like Peter's the spokesperson for the men disciples. And, and here's what happens. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the disciple Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. And again, he's not being arrogant. Jesus loves me best. He's saying, he's saying, I can't believe Jesus loved me. But he's saying, that's how he refers to himself, sort of in, in, the, in, the, in the third person. So the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, said, and she, this is what Mary said, I have, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. They, 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 they. Who's they? We don't know who they is. What did they do? We don't know. We just know there's no body in there. And, and you know, these brave women who go to do this at the tomb uh, in the midst of the, the chaos and the death of that weekend, and the men, they're hiding because there's a price probably on their head. And, they, and, and what would be your reaction if you were one of them and someone ran up and told you that? Well, Luke tells us exactly what their reaction was. Look at this. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. Wouldn't that be a reaction? I mean, this is interesting right here because some of you here may right now be in the same situation as the early friends of Jesus in these early moments of Sunday morning. Because if you believe that Jesus was a real person and you believe that he was in all likelihood crucified on a Roman cross like the Bible lays it out, you, if you believe that much, you are like these early disciples. You're also like just about every historian and every scholar in the world today, even the atheist scholars, everybody, non-believers, they all believe that about Jesus. But that's exactly where these people were on Friday night, Saturday, and early Sunday morning. Well, nonsense or not, Peter and John go, you know, we're not just going to sit around. I mean, if you know anything about Peter, he is not going to sit around. So they get up and they start running toward the tomb and trying to find these people who did this thing. And look what happens. Because John tells us exactly what happens because he was there. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John again, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, John wants you to know that he got there first. But more and more I read this text, I really have a very important thing to tell you. Cut Peter some slack because he's getting older, okay? He's older than John. All right, here we go. He bent over and looked into the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Of course he did. That's what Peter always did. He saw the strips lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. You see, if they'd gone in there and they'd seen, you know, everything out there just taken off the slab and a bare slab. End of story, it's over. Go find out who did this and get the body back. But that's not what they saw. 
They saw the linens that had been quickly prepared around Jesus' body and wrapped around Jesus' body the way they entombed him in those days and laid on that slab. Those, those linens were still there in the place they would be of a body that was there. But that's not all they saw. John wants us to know something, and in order to get this through, i got to tell you something about a word and the language that John used to write his story, to write his gospel. It's, a, it's in the Greek language, and the word that he uses here is one word, but it takes us four words in English to describe what it actually means. And it, I'm referring to the, the phrase, had been wrapped up. And in other words, referring to the, the bandages that had been wrapped around the head of Jesus' body. Because here's what you need to know. That's in a tense that we don't have in English. It's in the perfect tense. Perfect, passive, participle. I know that doesn't change your life, but hold on for just a second. Passive means something happened that was, was done to Jesus' body that he did not do. Okay, that's like we use passive. Participle means that it's continuing on into the future. But here's the, here's the double down. The word perfect, or the perfect tense, means that something happened in the past that is still having an effect on the present and on into the future. In other words, what has been done in the past is still the way it was when it was done in the past. So what they're saying is, what John is saying, is that when he looked in that tomb, he saw the bandages that were wrapped around Jesus' head as if they were still wrapped around Jesus' head. It's just there was no head. It's as if somebody had slipped out. It was like a balloon that went, if somebody's going to steal a body, how would they make that up? And that's confusing to John. It's confusing to Peter. And they're, they're scratching their head. In fact, John details it this way. Look how he does. He's very, very honest, very straightforward, as I said. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Now, he's referring to himself. And he saw and believed. And it's like, way to go, John. You saw and believed. No, no, no. You don't get it. Wait, 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 wait. Verse 9, they still did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They, didn't, <laughs> they still didn't understand what they were looking at. You see, John is doing something very helpful to us because he's describing the difference between belief and real trust. You see, the word can go both ways. We trust, faith, believe. It's, it's all basically the same word. But John is saying, yeah, I believe something happened. But in terms of trusting enough to believe that Jesus was alive yet, he wasn't there yet. Being able to trust someone or something to the point where you take your life and you move it across the table and you say, I'm going to do something with my life. That's what I believe. That's the kind of belief that turns into trust. And that's what John was saying he was still working on for him. You see, John followed Jesus uh, from uh, the time of John the baptizer. And, and, uh, and I say that because John wasn't any more, you know, John the Baptist wasn't Baptist or Presbyterian or Covenant or whatever. He was a baptizer, and he was causing quite a stir. So John was one of his disciples, one of his, he was sort of John's mentor. And, and John the Baptist was also uh, uh, the, the, uh, a mentor for a guy named Andrew who also became a follower of Jesus. Well, one day, John uh, looks up, John the baptizer, and he looks up, and he, he points, and he looks at his, he sees his cousin coming, Jesus. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, these two guys, they go, wait, that's pretty serious. We that's what we would like to learn about. We would like to learn it. And they say, we think we're going to follow him. John says, go. So he goes. The two of them go. They chase after Jesus. And Jesus turns around. And he stops and he stares at him and says, what do you want? 
uh, where are you staying, Jesus? And to us, that sounds goofy, but in, in, in ancient world, what they really mean is, is, hey, we would like to hear more about this, so we're going to hang out with you for the night. And that was the beginning of an incredible relationship and adventure because they learned what it meant that Jesus was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That was the process that began John going from believing to trusting and just hang on to that thought because I'm going to give you a chance to decide whether you're in the believing or the trusting side of that a little later, okay? But that's what John is saying. He's saying, look, I walk with Jesus and I had this growing belief very early on that he was the Messiah. Then when he came to the cross... And the crucifixion and those, those days between that and Sunday, I didn't believe. I unbelieved. And then when I saw the empty tomb, I sort of re-believed. And then I, something actually happened that caused me to really trust, believe again. So let me, let me slow that down and do that one more time. John, as he's walking with Jesus, thinks Jesus is, is the Son of God. When he's crucified, he just can't compute it. He just can't make sense of it. it, it there's no way for him to figure it out. And, and so he just says, okay, I, 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 I unbelieved. But then he sees something. He just doesn't know what he believes. He believes again, but he, he's not sure what he's believing. But then something happened that caused him to believe again. You see, the point of this at this stage is to recognize that all the gospel writers, the witnesses, documented their own disbelief. They're not trying to pull one over on people. They weren't looking to start a new movement. They wanted the movement over. They didn't want to be a part of this anymore. They wanted to walk away. That's where they were at that moment. But then the something happened that caused them to re-believe, and that something is also documented by John in the same chapter in verse 19. Look what happens. On the evening of that first day, in other words, the day they found the empty tomb, that first day, that Sunday, of the week, when the disciples went to get, were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So again, they're, 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 nobody's running through the streets saying, we've seen a miracle, we've seen a miracle. They're hiding. They're not sure what they've seen. And all of a sudden, Jesus walks into the room. In fact, you can imagine what that would be like. In fact, Luke doesn't leave anything for the imagination. Look how Luke describes this event. He says, they were startled and frightened. I bet they were. This is sort of Luke's Captain Obvious interpretation of what happened. It's the understatement of, 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 of all history. They were frightened, and they, saw, they thought they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And your minds, uh, why do you doubt, uh, does doubts rise in your minds? I, 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 I'm laughing because I think Jesus said this with a grin. Because I think he was always kind of playing with them. Did I freak you out? You know, I mean, that kind of thing. I mean, because he's, he's always saying, don't be afraid. Why are you troubled? Did I scare you? I mean, he's always doing that. Like, for example, when they're in, in the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea, it's a huge lake, and it's surrounded by mountains, so the, the winds just come down from the west or the east, and they swoop in there, and they make these huge waves, five, ten feet high, and these guys were fishermen. Who believed, by the way, if they dropped in that water and went down, they were in the netherworld, and they weren't coming back? So there's this added thing about not just drowning, but that other bad stuff. And so Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat in the midst of this storm, and they wake him up. Jesus, Jesus, wake up. And he wakes up. He goes, why are you troubled? Because we're going to die. He says, yeah, but why are you troubled? And he calmly looks out as it calms the sea, and that's it. 
Remember that story? That, that, he does that a lot with them. So I kind of think that that's sort of how he came into the room that day. So John is trying to tell us that that's the state of mind that these people were in. But there's one person that he really highlights that sort of, he, you know, some people might think that John is throwing this person, his friend, under the bus because one of the disciples was not there. His name is Thomas. If you've ever heard the phrase, doubting Thomas, it's in the Bible. That's where we get it. In fact, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we use in our language that most people don't know. But, but here's what happened a week later to Thomas. And, and, and John talks about Thomas more than any of the others. And again, I don't think he's throwing him under the bus. I think he's his friend. And he's trying to say, we were just like Thomas. In fact, a week later, it, the exact same thing happened to him. Look what happens. Now Thomas, known as Didymus, which means twin, he's identifying him from other Thomases. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Okay, that would be gross to me, but he really wanted to be sure. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors <clears throat> were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. With, and then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I don't know if he touched him or not, but Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Watch this. Some of us are in this statement of Jesus. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How about that? You see, Thomas was an example. John is saying he was just like us, and it changed for him just like us. What I'm trying to tell you, John is saying, is that something happened in space and time, that is in history, on this planet, in this world, that is so unusual that it changed usual forever. And we saw it. And that something was Jesus alive after we knew that he was dead. That's what changed everything. In fact, it didn't just change everything. It explains everything about God and what God is up to in this world, and what he wants to do in your life and my life, it explains all of that, everything that matters. It doesn't answer all our questions. Never known a person who became a Christian had all their questions answered. I still got questions for crying out loud. But everything that matters about God and what he's up to in this world, the resurrection, seeing Jesus alive, that answered it for them. And that's why they document it this way. You see, we've got to kind of pull back here and talk about what happens for every single person that's ever followed Jesus, every single person that's become a Christian, every single person who's experienced this in a real way. Because there's this thing that these disciples had. They had a certain worldview. They had a certain view of life. They had a certain view of Jesus. They had a certain view of, of how the universe works. They had a certain view of what God was up to. They had a certain view of all of this stuff. And somehow, in the midst of this experience, that all changed for them. In fact, I'm going to make a radical statement. It's radical, but it's designed to make us all think a little bit. And I think it's true. And here it is. Every single person on the planet has a theological worldview. 
Yes, a theological worldview. You see, every person who's a, a, a president, a, a senator, a government official, a, a plumber, a, a, a construction worker, a doctor, a lawyer, uh, even people who are atheists and say, you know, my destiny is in my hands. Even people like that, which is basically saying, I am, small g, God unto myself. Everybody has a theological world view. They view the world through it. And I'll make another rash statement. It's virtually impossible for one human being to persuade another human being to, to change their worldview, to, trans, to uh, exchange their worldview. It's, all, it's virtually impossible. For, for those of us who are, are uh, you know, believers, those of us who are Christians, we would say that it takes a divine event for that interchange to happen, to, for that exchange of God's worldview for our worldview that we have. But even people that aren't Christians would say it takes a mortality-invoking event, something that invokes the idea that we are human beings, that we are mortals. You see, this is why Jesus again and again and again and again had to tell his disciples, I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. I'm going to die, but I'm coming back. Because every time he said bad news, like they're going to die, they say, no, that, I can't think, that can't be possible. You're the son of God. Can't be possible. So you must be using a metaphor. Death must mean something else. You know, and, and so they would check out and check out and check out every time. And again, let's not be too hard on these people because they didn't have the hindsight that we have. They don't have any of that you know, Sunday morning stuff and that Easter kind of experience to, to fall back on. They had none of that. And what John is trying to say to us is when this happened, when we saw it, Mary uh, Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, uh, Martha, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, all the people, when they saw this, what they realized is everything had changed. The history of the world was changing because the resurrection of Jesus created Christianity. And again, they didn't have the hindsight that today one-third of the planet would be worshiping and singing the same things and reading the same scriptures that you and I are right now. They didn't have any of this sense. And the reality is, is that not only did Christianity, did resurrection create Christianity, but it launched the church. Again, these people didn't want to launch into some movement, some conspiracy. They were they were just hiding. They were beat up. They were tired. They were emotionally drained. And yet when this happened, this something that caused them to re-believe, seeing Jesus alive after they knew he was dead, it had extraordinary implications for their lives. I just want to tell you a couple of them. For example, Peter, you know, the kind of the spokesperson of, of the group, he had his life radically changed. In fact, he had denied Jesus, remember, at the crucifixion, uh, at the trial, and, and uh, Jesus had predicted that. He was sure, you know, he wasn't going to do that, but it did it, and it happened. Well, Jesus has breakfast with Jesus and coffee on the beach. And after that, Peter's a new person. He's a completely new man. He starts speaking up all over the place, even though he knows that saying this stuff, it could get him killed. He looks at the religious leaders and says, you killed him, you better say you're sorry. You know? He does that over and over again, even though he knows it's going to get him a beating, it's going to get him put in prison. He actually winds up running toward danger. And as an old man, he runs toward danger so much that he becomes uh, into the 
purview or into the sphere of reference of a guy named Nero, Caesar. And he winds up in Rome, and, and, and uh, Nero says, I'm going to crucify you. This is, this is a tradition now, pretty strong tradition, historical tr- tradition. We got good documentation on this, that he gets him in Rome, and then he says, <clears throat> Peter says, no, don't crucify me. I don't deserve to be killed like Jesus was killed, because I saw that. Crucify me upside down. <laughs> so that's exactly what Nero did. And you see, that, that Peter, before he dies, writes a couple of open letters to the church. And in the first one, he starts off from the very first words talking about the resurrection. And then in the next sentence, in the next verse, here's what he says. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. He's talking to Christians now because of this resurrection. uh, resurrection. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. Do you see what he just did? This is extraordinary. It almost violates our sensibilities nowadays of how things should be. It's the, it's the last vestige of the argument that's been used over and over again for God's non-existence. That if there is a God, how in the world could there be suffering and pain in the world? If there was a God, there wouldn't be any of that. He'd just take us out of that. And, and Peter's saying, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. That's an imaginary God. We don't believe in that God because we've seen this God alive. We've seen him go through the worst thing. These men and women saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person they ever knew. And when that happened, they realized that that's what God would do for their lives. He would raise them up. He'd resurrect them too. He'd resurrect them ultimately, yes, but he'd resurrect them when they got knocked down. They'd be back up. If God wanted them here, they'd be back up. And and if he took them to heaven, well, shoot, they're going to be alive there too. In fact, that brought them so much peace and joy that their sufferings in this world actually became proof that, yes, this is a fallen world. Yes, there is sin and wrong in this world, but that just means that Jesus has picked me up and carried me over, and he's given me his spirit to overcome all of that. It was proof to them. It was the opposite of what we might think suffering and pain was. And they're not, it's not to downgrade anybody's suffering, but these people saw suffering more than was possibly imagined. They saw it in Jesus. And in fact, they experienced more than imagine, the, the suffering than we can imagine. What, what is trying to be said here by these writers is that we know that God is for us because Jesus died for us, not because things work out for us because that is an imaginary God. You see, this is the amazing thing. Okay, think about this. There is a unity of witness. What's that? That means that everybody that talks about this, writes about this, that claims to have been there. Nobody leaks out something and saying, you know what? We got in the back room before this thing came out and we were smoking cigars and stuff. We said, hey, let's figure out how to do this. You know, let's figure out how to keep this stuff going. Let's fake the whole world out. Nobody says that. It would be impossible anyway, but nobody says that. I mean, what planet, what world have you ever seen that there aren't leaks, that somebody doesn't, you know, let something out? I mean, even a little place like the White House can't keep leaks from coming out. Even a special prosecutor like Bob Mueller can't keep leaks from coming out. If there's a conspiracy, if this was a conspiracy, there would have been a leak, but there's not one. 
It's a unity of witness. And what's interesting, too, is all of these disciples have a unity of witness in terms of what they write, including John, whom we've been following all day. You see, John was the only uh, one of the 12 who wound up living uh, and dying, as far as we know, from old age. So he doesn't even write his gospel until he's, you know, late 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, we're not sure. But it's toward the second century, almost out of the first century. And he's writing this stuff. And, and uh, you know, you, you think about this. John has been uh, watching over Jesus' mother, Mary, like Jesus said from the cross, take care of my mom. And, um, and then he takes care of her in Jerusalem, but things get hot there, so he moves to a place, a Greek city called Ephesus. Uh, this, again, is tradition, that it's pretty well-documented tradition. And, and he's living there, but by that time, a guy is named Domitian has become the Caesar. And, and Caesar, this Caesar is particularly violent against Christians. And this Caesar knows that John is still alive. He knows his name. So it's kind of like, John, why, why didn't you just shut up about this and kind of ride off into the sunset? You're an old man. You've done everything you need to do. Just kind of relax. But he doesn't do that. He writes, again, open letters to the church. He writes his gospel. And, and John, in his first letter, the, the largest one, says this in the very first verse. Look what he says. With that which from the beginning. Okay, so he's talking about the beginning of his time with Jesus when he was with John the Baptist and he turned and said, hey, we want to we wanna see where you're staying. But he's also talking about the beginning of the world, the creation of the world, because that's exactly how he starts his gospel. He says, he was there. He was God, is what he's trying to say, in the beginning of the world. And here's what he says about that. He says, in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. We heard him and we saw him. He's talking about the reality of the teaching and his time living with Jesus, but he's also talking about the fact that he saw Jesus alive after he was dead. And here's why we know that. Look what he says next. He says, we have seen him with our eyes, which we have looked at. And looked at doesn't mean, hey, I see you. Bye, I wouldn't want to be you. No, it means looked at closely. In fact, it can mean looked at so closely you actually feel and touch the person, which is why it says with our hands touched. He's talking about that moment when he walked into the room and when, especially when Thomas was there and Thomas uh, touched him. We're not told exactly that he did. He was so overwhelmed. But look at this. This we proclaim concerning the word, capital W, of life. You see what John is doing here? He wants to be so clear. He wants to be so accurate. He doesn't want to get his stuff all mixed up in this. He wants to be clear, 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 clear. And so what he does is he searches around for a word that's used in the empire by philosophers and religious people alike and non-religious people. Everybody uses this word. This word is word. And it, it's logos. It's like biology, a, a word about life, or theology, uh, uh, theology. Like, like it's, it's, it's um, like a word about God, okay? And so he digs up this word, but in the empire, what this word had come to mean is the sort of the, the uh, foundation of all life, the, the, the basis of all that we see. For religious people, obviously, it was God himself. That's why why John is using this word. And, and he's using it in such a way, he's saying, essentially when Jesus walked in the room, he's saying, okay, see, I am God, and I got this. I've got this. So it's, it's, it's the, it's, it, for the philosophers, it was the principle or the concept or the force that keeps everything spinning. For people who believe there was a God, this was the God that kept it all going. 
That's the word. That's why it's capitalized in our English because that's, that's exactly, obviously, what John is trying to say. You know, sometimes when I'm texting with Danae about, you know, we got to do this and so forth, and she texts back, and, she's, and, and, and at one point I'll say, you know what, I think we need to do this, and she'll go, word. You know why? Because it's like, I got to get back to my kids, quit talking to me, uh, I got this, don't worry about it. And I, I think, okay, good, all right. But that's why John uses this word, but it's a capital, because it's not just a word, it's not a force, it's not a, a concept, it's not a feeling, it's a person. And we've seen him, and we've touched him. And you look at that and you go, whoa, John, what? That's, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal news. And he goes, yeah, right, I know, right? And he says, and then he, I, we, we want to say, well, John, what should we do about it? How, how do we, you know, how are we supposed to process this? Well, let me tell you what we have realized. After all these years of the, the, the difficult times, the joyous times of, of living to old age and so forth and so on, wise old John tells us exactly what to do in some of the most famous words in the New Testament. A few lines later in verse 8, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You see, he's back to this whole theological worldview thing because he's talking about this truth. Look at that word at the end, the, the truth. Because he was wrestling in his day with something that we wrestle with in our day. Because most often people say, I have my truth, you have your truth. In other words, it's up to the individual to come up with their own truth. You gotta find your truth, man. You find your truth and then everything's great. The only problem is it could be that, could be that, could be that, could be that. And it's all on your shoulders to find the truth. And John is saying, no, 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 that's not truth. Truth is something that actually corresponds with reality and is, is really real and is really true whether you are aware of it or not and whether I'm aware of it or not. That's really truth with a capital T. And he says that kind of truth is not in you as long as you say you're without sin. I mean, most of us have said this at some point in our life. I've said it, you know, because it's like, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not sin. But something deep down, doesn't it? Something deep down tells you, uh, yeah, but... Something's bugging me because, I mean, like, the, like if there is a God, surely I violated his standards. I violated his morals at least once. Okay, twice, three times. Okay, a bazillion times, right? I mean, something in us tells us that that's true. And, and so John says, don't be under the hand of the deceiver. He specifically knows what Jesus had taught, what Jesus believed, and what he believed, that there is a person behind evil. A, a, an entity named Satan, and his mode of operation is to deceive and to lie. And he's saying, don't get sucked into the, that worldview, because that's a lie. But you can have the truth. Oh, John, John, how do we do that? How, where, where's the pathway? He says, well, I'm glad you asked, because you know what? Jesus' death and resurrection opened that path for you and me. And here's what he says. Some of the most famous words in the New Testament if we confess our sins, that is, if we agree with God that you're right, God, I've violated you, I've sinned against you. That's all we're talking about here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forg and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you see the relational element here? He's saying, if you just simply admit to me that this is true, because of Jesus taking the wages of your sin and my sin on that cross and then beating back the power of sin and death in that resurrection, he's set the whole world, he's changed everything. And I will forgive your sins and you will be pure, like a, a pure child of God running back into the arms of a good, good father. That's what he's saying is possible. I mean, it's mind-boggling, but that's what these people came to. It's an extraordinary event. 
that if we witness it, if we, understand, if, we, if we come in contact with it in a real way, we too will want to say, I want, that, I want to find that kind of relationship with God. I want to find him forgiving my sins, not, not making me have to come up with my truth all the time, but receiving the truth as a gift from him about what's really real and what's really true. And so this extraordinary event has extraordinary implications that go down through the centuries right to you and me. And let me just quickly summarize them. The first one is, is God is personal. He's not a force. He's not a feeling. He is person to be related to. Suffering, secondly, is not evidence of God's absence. These people believed it was actually proof because of what God did to them in the midst of the suffering and how God cared for them in the midst of all that. Thirdly, heaven is real. It's not just a platitude that some preacher says, you know, at a funeral or something. It's exactly what Jesus said the night that he was in the upper room and before he was arrested and went to the cross. In John 14, he says, look, I'm going away, but I'm preparing a place for you. They totally zone it. They'd miss it. What? Where are you going? No, no he said, I'm, I'm preparing a place for you. He's preparing a place for us. That's, that's what heaven is. And, and the pathway to get there is the forgiveness of our sins. And what just John is saying and what Jesus is saying by his resurrection is forgiveness is available now. Here it is. You see, if... What that means is if we take that pathway and if we believe, believe that that's true and we take our lives and we trust in him as the son of God again, what, what is true then is that the invitation that John puts at the end of his gospel is true for you and me. This is stunning. This, this may be the most extraordinary thing you could imagine is true about this story. Look at what John says at the end. He says in verse 30, chapter 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe, and that means in the trust sense, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may lean into him and have life, life in his name, which is the word eternal life, which means experiencing him and knowing God from now to eternity. It just doesn't mean sitting on a cloud somewhere forever. It means knowing him, experiencing him, relating to him. You see, why this is so important, I'm going to give you the chance to, to decide where you're at on this. Because you see, what this invitation is, is the invitation into the kingdom of God, into the, into the, Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. What's different about it is, is this is a kingdom where the king dies for his subjects, which seems so crazy and upside down to us. But doesn't something deep in your heart tell you, I think that may be more right side up than the world I live in now? Hmm. The way I'm seeing the world, maybe that's more right side up. And that's John's inspiring idea. You know, as, as I watched Notre Dame burning this week. And this was before we knew anything could be saved. And if you've ever been to uh, um, Notre Dame, which I have a few years ago, and this beautiful place, and what, you know, I'm kind of a his history geek, and it's like, oh, okay, this is proof. This is proof that 860 years ago, people believed that what they were worshiping was actually God, and that steeple's pointing up to them and all that, right? And as I watched that thing fall, the, the thought came to me, man, this is the death of an inspiring idea. And here's the thing, it's nobody's fault, but as human beings, when, when something is put out of sight, it's out of mind, right? Just like if Jesus had stayed in that tomb, his body was still there, out of sight, out of mind, we wouldn't be here today, we would be home praying for the blazers or whatever it is, 
we would not be here today because Christianity would have died right there with them. It's also true that the inspiring idea, if you sense that tug in your heart that, hey, you know what, maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to talk to God about this. Maybe I would like to take that pathway that Jesus has made for me to have a relationship with God and himself. That's an inspiring idea, but if you put it out of sight and walk out of this room, you never know when it's going to come back because it's going to be out of mind. It's just human nature for that to happen. So I'd like to invite anyone here who wants to, to open that invitation. So would you bow your heads and hearts with me in prayer? I'm going to pray that verse that John says about how we can have that relationship with God, that statement that he makes. And if that's your desire, as I pray, just say, yes, God, yes, God, or, you know, just pray the words after me. I'll try to go slow enough. But this is a prayer for anyone who says, I do not have a relationship with Jesus, but I would like one. I would like him to forgive my sin and give me the truth about what's really real and to be my friend and to love me that way, the love he displayed by dying on that cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. We thank you for sending your son to us to die. It seems so confusing at first, but now it seems so loving and incredible that you would do it. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would hear our prayers here today. And if this is your prayer, you repeat after me in your heart and mind or just say, that's my prayer, God. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross and raising from the dead. And Jesus, you have said through your word that if we confess or agree with you about our sin that's kept us from you, you'll take that sin away and you'll forgive us. And you'll cleanse us and purify us so that we too can be in relationship with you and have peace with you and have the peace with you in the midst and the joy that you promised in the midst of the struggles we have in life as well as the joys we have in life. Would you make that true? Would you come into my life today? Would you give me that life, that you, your resurrected life, starting right now? It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. And that's all you need to say. Now, my guess is there might be somebody here who prayed that prayer with me. And if you did, I want everybody's head still bowed, but would you be willing to raise your hand and tell me that you prayed that prayer between you, me, and God, all right? Just let me know. Thank you. Anybody else? Yep. Yep. Anybody else? Let me know. Yep. Thank you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these four or five people that you would, in fact, bring them into yourself so much that you would say to them, I'm here, I'm with you, we are friends, we have a relationship, I love you. Would you just make that real clear because that's what you've promised and we know that you will. And as we all go from this place, Lord, we pray that you would make it possible for us to say, it's not out of sight, out of mind. Jesus, you're real and you're with me every day and, and I, I, I want to experience more and more and more of you because that's what it means to have eternal life. We thank you and we praise you that this is possible and we, we don't know what to say. Thanks just means too little for what you have done for us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Amen. 
Now, everybody look up here for a second. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do something. I'm asking everybody in the room to do something with these blue cards that you got in your, your bulletins. Um, and uh, as we go from here, we're going to take up an offering. I'm going to have the ushers come forward here shortly. And uh, I'm going to ask you to respond with the letters Y-E-S, yes, okay? If you prayed that prayer with me for the first time, even if you didn't raise your hand, whatever else, just put a Y on there, okay? Let me know that you did, because I want to pray for you. So put a Y on there that means yes to Jesus for the first time. I'm saying yes to Jesus for the first time. E, you put an E on there if you're an existing Christian. And I don't mean you're just like kind of a bump on the log. I'm an existing and growing Christian. That's what this means, okay? I needed an E, so that's, that's what that means for those of us who are already Christians. Or for someone who says, you know, I was a Christian, I thought I was a Christian, but I walked away, but I'm coming back. Today I'm coming back. That's what the S is for. It means starting again. Kind of like John and Peter and the rest of the disciples, they started again. So that would be your letter, Y-E-R-S. Yes to Jesus, existing Christian, or starting again as we take up this offering. And if you're new with us, I'm just asking you to put this in the offering bag. That's it. For the rest of us, just put these in the offering bag too as it goes by. God bless you. I'll be praying for you this week. And if you don't have a church home, we would love to be your church home. Uh, And we're so glad you're here today. God bless you.